Hi, you're listening to Mastering Money, where we explore the many financial aspects of good financial decision making. I'm Dorena Thompson, Financial Literacy Leader for Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. We provide no-cost programs and free online resources to help Canadians own their finances and learn the language of money. This season, we're looking at that four-letter word that so many of us know all too well debt, because understanding and managing debt is easier when you know your options and have the right guidance. Today, I'm joined by two guests, Licensed Insolvency Trustee Jeff Lewis, a Senior Vice President at BDO Debt Solutions, and Money Teacher and Coach Chantelle Chapman, founder of The Trauma of Money. Jeff's been advising individuals and businesses in all sectors for over 35 years. Chantelle has worked as a financial literacy consultant, a mortgage broker, and has done extensive research in addiction, behavioral science, trauma, and mindfulness. My guests are joining me today to discuss why it's so hard for some people to face their debt head on and why talking about it is so crucial for recovery. Jeff and Chantel, thanks for being here today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and your careers? Jeff, let's start with you. Thanks, Doretta. So I grew up in London, England. I started my career in banking and quickly decided that accounting was the way of my future. So I joined uh, Qualified as an Accountant in London. I was uh, 25 at the time. I started a practice in London, ran that for 12 years. So standard audit, tax, you know, consulting, that type of thing. And then decided to emigrate to Canada when I was 40. So when I came to Canada, picked up on what I knew, we qualified as a CPA and worked for one of the very large practices. And back in the last recession, I got involved with what we call insolvency. So that's uh, both individuals and businesses they were struggling with their debt due to the recession. So I spent some time doing what we call corporate insolvency. So receiverships, corporate bankruptcies, and very quickly realized that during that time, I was really only helping the professionals and the business owner was losing his business. The employees would lose their jobs. The creditors wouldn't get paid and so on. So like really no one chooses this job on purpose. It falls it by accident. I accidentally fell into what we call consumer insolvency. So now I spend every day helping individuals who find themselves in too much debt. So as a licensed insolvency trustee, and there's about a thousand licenses in Canada, we help individuals basically become debt-free by applying resolutions under the what's called a bankruptcy insolvency act, which is a federal act, which allows people to basically work through their debt and become debt-free at the end of a, a journey, which is either a bankruptcy or what's more common now is a consumer proposal. And Chantal, a little bit about your journey. Yeah, so I mean, I started my career in finance 19 years ago now at 21 years old as a mortgage broker. And while working as a mortgage broker at such a young age, so many of my clients that I was getting were declined by the banks, you know, Oftentimes, people weren't trusting a 21-year-old with the biggest <laughs> purchase of their lives. So I was getting the folks that were always declined, and, and they were coming to me as a last resort. So what I was doing is I was looking at their credit, and I'm like, you know, why are they getting declined here? And I found myself in a position where I was teaching financial literacy to them. And while I was doing that, I felt this big kind of feeling of injustice, like, why don't people know this? And so I opened up a financial literacy education company. I worked with teenagers. I worked with young adults. Then I started consulting with financial technology companies. And while I had this great career in financial education, 
my finances were not so great. I was racking up credit card debt. I was under earning. I was underspending. I was filing my taxes late. And it was like, how is it that I thought the reason originally I was doing these things was because I didn't have enough financial literacy. But not only do I have financial literacy, I'm teaching it and I still have these behaviors. And that led me to get on a path of trying to understand this. So I started studying addiction recovery, behavioral economics, community economic development, trauma recovery, and all of this, these different modalities, the psychology of scarcity. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring them together to have them talk to each other. And that was really the birth of trauma of money was to create some connection between the mental health space and the finance space. That is fascinating. The two of you met at CPA Canada's Financial Literacy Conference in November. I saw you in conversation several times, and I'm really curious about what connected you? What did you find in common that really led you to want to keep exploring, you know, the sort of financial literacy from your two different perspectives? Chantal, maybe you could start. Yeah, well, the moment I found out what Jeff was doing for work, I was super curious because I know Jeff is going to talk a little bit about this, but I really believe that folks who work in Jeff's industry are mental health practitioners. They alleviate so much shame and create so much spaciousness for people who are experiencing a lot of suffering around debt. So of course, I wanted to talk with him more about what he was seeing. And I've been so excited for this conversation because at the conference, we only got little pockets to talk, but now we get to go deep. And I'm very excited to get into conversation with Jeff and you too, Doretta. Uh, Jeff, I did see you in some of these quick conversations with Chantel. How did her insights really kind of twig your interests? Oh, thanks, Dorado, and thank you, Chantel. I was absolutely fascinated. So we see people every day that are in debt, that are struggling, and as Chantel said, we are counsellors, if you like, with financial skills. But what we don't often stop to think is how the other, how that person is thinking. And so try to get into their head when we're talking to them. It's For us, it's, you know, we've had this conversation hundreds, maybe thousands of times, but for them, it's brand new. They've never been to see a trustee before. They've never confronted their debt issues before. So when we're talking to these people, you know, in order to put ourselves in their shoes so we can advise them perhaps in a way they can understand how are they thinking and what's going through their mind when they're talking to a professional and really laying out, you know, all their secrets, all their financial secrets on the table with someone I've just met. So the way that Chantel has drilled into it and has, has analysed people's thought processes and their mental um, states of being when they do get into debt is, is for me, is fascinating. Yeah. So let's start there then, Jeff, and think about your actual experience. I'm thinking that, you know, when a client sits across from you, they've probably pretty much exhausted all their options, or they think they've exhausted all their options. So what's the behavior that you see when people are struggling with debt? How do they get to that point? And what's it like meeting with them? Yeah. So when someone comes in, they're in a position where they say to me, I bet you've never seen this before. I'm in more debt than anyone you've ever seen before. And my situation turned up and I said, okay, let's talk about it, right? And Doretta, just by making that step to go and see a professional is, I think, the biggest hurdle, all right? Because we talk to people and I talk to people all the time and, you know, I'll give them advice and, 
we don't always steer them down the road of a, a solution that's you know, legally regulated. Sometimes it's just, this is what you should perhaps be doing. Look at your budget, you know, look at the way you're spending money. Think about money differently. And sometimes they go away and, and they'll try and work it out. But we know sometimes they come back and they need help later on because they haven't been successful in perhaps what we suggested that they do. So we know that when people come and see us, they have absolutely tried every single avenue to clear their debt up by themselves because people try and help themselves. They generally don't want help. So you'll go to your bank, you'll try and refinance your debt. That doesn't generally work too well if your credit rating's bad and banks don't tend to like financing other banks' debt. They'll sell assets if they have any assets. They'll talk to friends, they'll talk to family. You know, they'll rely on high interest debt, what we call predatory lenders. And, you know, we see people with stacks of credit cards. Well, generally speaking, you really only need one credit card in life. But when you're financially distraught, you will go and take on more credit cards so you can start moving credit around and moving those payments around. So using credit to pay credit, call it kiting. And when you can't access any more credit and you're literally at the bottom end of the, the bottom row on the ladder, that's when you go and see your trustee. So we know when people sit in front of us, they don't want to be there, but they absolutely need to be there because this is their last resort. It's a very powerful thing. And I never take it for granted that, you know, when someone's coming to see me, they're putting huge trust in that person to, to ask for help. And we know that people can take a very long time before they may take that step and they can be, you know, have been dealing with terrible stress for years at a time. When I tell people the solutions and what we can do to help them, the most common response I get is, I wish I'd come to see you two years ago or a year ago or three years ago. Because yeah. for them, nothing's changed in those last two or three years. They've been struggling with debt for years and years and years. And all they've done every year is just pay more interest. But I say to them, well, you perhaps weren't in a position mentally to come see me three years ago. You had to go through that process in order to get to the point where you are now, right? It's a journey. And I say to people, I say to people, you know, everyone meets me for the same reason because they're in, they have too much unsecured debt. But their journey getting there for everybody is unique and different. Chantelle, when you hear Jeff describe his clients and their experiences, what does that tell you about the deeper stories? What do you think is sort of going on under the surface? Yeah, so when I hear what Jeff is saying, immediately I ask myself, what are they feeling? Like, what is the emotion that they're feeling? And I'm hearing shame. It's shame. It's like, I am carrying shame because I have debt. It could be I'm carrying shame because I maybe the fact that I have debt means like I'm horrible with money. And then I like to unpack what is shame actually. And we know that shame can basically become like an identity. It's not like, oh, I've got credit card debt, but I'm really great at money over here. You know, it's like a whole blanket statement identity. And what is that feeling of shame? What does that actually mean to us? And we know that shame is the feeling of I'm going to potentially be abandoned. So we say it's like the terror of abandonment. It's a massive feeling for folks. And this idea of being abandoned really allows that isolating narrative to seep through. And that's why Jeff says that so many people are kind of going through the same thing, but they believe that they're the only one. They carry so much shame. They're in this like vacuum of isolation. And what happens is they blame themselves for it. 
And so a lot of the work that we do in the trauma of money is we work first and foremost with shame. Um, There's quite a bit of shame that exists within our financial world. And we help folks depersonalize that shameful narrative that they carry. So we ask this question, like, whose shame is this? Whose shame is it that, you know, I'm bad with money because I have debt or people are going to think I'm like a loser or stupid because I have this debt. And we ask like, where does that come from? Because we're trying to get them to depersonalize that identity, the narrative around shame. And once they can depersonalize that and move out of isolation, they can get to a place where they can take action on what Jeff is going to try and share with them to do. And to get there, we call this the pro-social shame ladder. So step one is radical honesty. And it's not just like, I'm honest. You have to be received with acceptance and belonging because that's the opposite of abandonment. So when I say that the folks that do the work that Jeff does are mental health practitioners, I mean it because they hold the role of acceptance and belonging. Someone goes in and says, radical honesty, this is so hard for me to say but this is going on. And that trustee is sitting there saying, you're still worthy. You're still a valuable human being. In that moment, that terror of abandonment, it gets smaller and then they can take the course of action that will help them get out of debt. Does that resonate with you, Jeff? Is that how you feel or is that how you see your clients? Do you see them lighten up under the burden of shame? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you have to understand that, you know, I think the common misconception is, is that most people get into debt because they're gambling or they're they're doing something crazy with their money. It's not the truth. So, you know, most people, a lot of it is just poor financial management or something that happens to them during their life that throws them a curveball, that they lose their job through an accident or redundancy or an illness or, you know, their expenses go up, they get divorced perhaps, right? And their income stays the same, but their expenses double. So sometimes it's not any fault of anyone's own. It's just ha- what happens through life. But because of the way they've been perhaps going through life financially and not been able to build up any cash reserves or anything to fall back on, then, you know, it does have a very big effect. And I've had so many people over the years have said to me, you know, I never thought I'd be in front of a trustee. And a year ago, I was riding high. I had assets, I had a house, I was married. And now, you know, the fall from grace is sometimes very, very sudden. So we do see a lot of shame. I can tell you a story. I had someone in my office last week, gentleman who was in his 60s, not quite retired, but divorced, had an older son, was looking after his son, had a very, very large tax debt because of something he did in the past. And we filed him into a bankruptcy. And he was absolutely broken, this man. And I said to him, I said, this is the government helping you make a fresh start. And you know, he said, well, it's the end. It's not the end. It's actually the beginning because now you're going to go forward. And in fact, in nine months, you're going to be debt free of all this. And it was well over a million dollars of tax debt. So I think it's a mental journey. You know, he said to me, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to have to get my head around it and think about it. But by and large, when you're talking to people and you understanding, because I always say to people, tell me, tell me why you're here. Tell me your journey to get here. And they come in and their shoulders are on the floor and you can see the weight of the world on them but as they start to talk to you and we let people talk and tell us their story you can see them opening up and then we come in and say well here's what i think we can do here's the advice and you can see the joy that spreads across their face but there's actually a solution 
and they've met this person that's not judging them and that will talk to them as a real human being and is there to help them. And I think the biggest issue, frankly, at the moment is people don't know where to turn when they're in trouble. They don't know what help's available. And I think that's the biggest problem because if people knew the options available to them, they would get help earlier. And I think we need to do a better job of that, frankly, because, you know, the longer you worry about money, the longer you stress about money, the worse effect it takes on your health, on a toll on your health. And I often say to people, I can fix your debt. You know, you have to fix everything else in your life, but this will be a big change for you, right? This will really improve your health. And that's the most important thing because without health, as we know, you could be a multi-billionaire. It doesn't mean anything if you're not healthy, right? So I love what I do for that reason that, you know, that you can change lives and show people a fresh, give them a fresh start really in, in ways they didn't think was possible. Yeah, Chantal, when you listen to that, how does that resonate with you in terms of getting people to be ready in themselves to ask for help earlier? I think that's a really interesting observation of Jeff's. But from what you're saying, there's also a journey the individual has to go through to be ready to ask for help. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple things come up. One is this idea that, you know, some folks who carry quite a bit of debt, they are placing the problem within themselves and making it like 100% their responsibility, which leads to a lot of shame. And so there's this very strong belief, like I did this, I messed this up oftentimes, which creates barriers to even asking for help. It reminds me of when I was researching financial psychology and money disorders. And one of the money disorders that I came across was overspending. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Overspending is a money disorder. Makes sense. What is it? You spend more money than you make. But the way it was being framed is it was a disorder, which implies that something's wrong with the individual that's doing it. And I noticed nowhere did it address that some people overspend because they live in poverty and minimum wage is really low. Some people can't afford to live in the cities that they live in, and they're in a position where they have to access high interest debt. Some people don't even have access to bank accounts. They're under bank and they pay 10% of their income just to access regular banking. And why do we call this like the way it's framed, even in financial psychology is this is a money disorder. This is a problem within you. And I think, well, can we actually provide some of the nuances around that and separate that out and say, no, you know, let's acknowledge that it's very challenging for you right here. Or let's acknowledge, like Jeff said, you went through this situation and there was a divorce and this is what happened. And let's start normalizing that. Because once we can start normalizing that, we can normalize the pathways to recovery. And then the next thing that comes up, and this is something when Jeff said it, I was like, yeah, it's so true. There's not a lot of awareness around the recovery pathway. Like what I hear most of the time is just just shame around bankruptcy or doing any type of like reaching out for credit recovery support. There's just shame. There's not the education. There's not the reframing of looking at it as like, you know, maybe you have an addiction and you go and get rehabilitation support. Like, why don't we look at it like that? 
recovery pathway. That's such a, a succinct way of putting it. Jeff, when somebody comes in, you know, they've never been in this situation before where they've reached out for help. Can you just give us a quick overview of what happens when you are in a position where you have to file for bankruptcy? How do you take people through that experience? What are their options? What does it look like? Yeah, so the first thing we do is, first of all, make them feel comfortable, right? Because they don't, they, they would rather be anywhere else in the world than sitting in front of a trustee at that point, right? So, but we know they're here and we know that they need help. So I say to people, tell me why you're here. What got you here, right? And then I learned very early on to listen, the skill of listening. Most people don't listen, they just talk. So we ask a question, let them talk, give them their story. And then I can drill it down fairly quickly into the facts, into, okay, these are your debts, these are your assets. And, you know, very quickly provide solutions to people. And bankruptcy is one of the solutions under the insolvency. There's also what's called a consumer proposal, which is now more common in Canada than a bankruptcy. And for good reason, it's a much softer approach to dealing with your debt. It allows people to pay back a percentage of their debt according to their ability to pay. So they're avoiding bankruptcy, but we're still getting the same protection from their creditors. And, really saying to them, where do you see yourself? Where do you see yourself in two, three, four, five years? What are your aspirations? What are your long-term goals? And, you know, really to read it, it starts with budgeting because, you know, it's a really interesting fact that very few people in Canada actually sit down and do a budget. When I'm talking about do a budget, I don't mean sitting there and thinking about what you spent last night when you went out for, for dinner. I mean, talk, really sitting down and planning your finances and planning them um, short-term, your monthly budget, planning your long-term goals, your retirement goals, planning your short-term, medium-term goals, perhaps you want to change, you know, by an asset, by a vehicle, really sitting down and, and planning. And I say to people, would you leave home? Now, of course, we never used to have Google Maps, right? So would you leave home without a, a map to get somewhere where you didn't know where it was? And people would say, no, of course I wouldn't. Well, if you're doing the same with your finances, you don't have a roadmap for your finances. How do you expect to get where you want to be in a certain number of years' time? So I say to people, well, you're behind the zero line now. You're in debt. Let's get you back to that zero line. And then I would suggest is that when we've helped you and you're debt-free, then you go and see someone that can help you to get above that line and can progress financially in the future. And you know, I've said to people in the past, if you woke up tomorrow and you didn't have any debt, how would you feel? And they're like, well, it'd be amazing. Well, this is what's going to happen, right? Because you can go along for the next five years and you can be paying interest uh, by the way interest in canada can go up to 60 percent legally i'm not sure if you knew that so you know when you're paying interest at 30 20 sometimes 40 percent is fairly common you're paying back more interest than you're actually repaying the debt and people say well i've had this loan for, for for two years but i haven't paid anything off the capital because you've only been paying interest right so let's reduce that payment let's get you in a position where in five years all your debt's gone and they can suddenly see this light at the end of the tunnel. And it doesn't make any sense not to do it sometimes for people. I see some people towards retirement, filing an insolvency, coming up to retirement is one of the biggest things I've seen at the moment because people get to their 60s, they've been carrying debt for the last 10 years, maybe, maybe even longer. And they suddenly realise, well, in five years, I'm going to be retired and I'm going to retire with debt. And so I haven't managed to get myself ahead. So what do I do? Okay, here's a plan for you, right? We also see people in their 20s. We see young people between the ages of 20 and 30, again, with too much debt, right? And But they've realized at an early age, this isn't a good idea and I need to get rid of this to be successful. And I say to them, well, you know, in, in a few years, debt will be gone and 
you know, you're going to be very successful in life, but you're doing the, the right thing now. So, you know, everyone's got a different story. They're all different stages in life. But the end result is what well, we I call it financial freedom, where you get to that ground zero level and then you can start to build your future wealth. Right. Because the last thing you want to do is go through life and end up after working for 30 years, really with the same positions when you started. Right. And struggle in your retirement years. One of my colleagues describes budgets in a way that I love. She says, really, budgets are what help you make your dreams come true. Because it's about setting your priorities and lining them up that way, right? According to what you really want to achieve. It is. Yeah, it is. And But before you do a budget, you have to do a financial plan, right? So you have to set goals. So we talk about short-term, medium-term, and long-term goals. So short-term goal may be, um, I want to go on vacation in 12 months, right? Medium-term goal. Perhaps they want to get married, maybe in five years, plan for that, right? Long-term goals, obviously retirement, that type of thing, right? or buying a, buying a property. But it's not complicated. You know, if you say to someone, well, they said, I want to go on holiday in 12 months. How much is holiday going to cost you? I don't know, $1,200, okay? Okay, so you've got now, 12 months until you go, how much do you have to save every month to get to that financial goal? Well, it's simple math, right? $100 a month, in 12 months, you've got the cash in the bank, you can pay and go on holiday, right? That's what I mean by financial goals. And it's not really rocket science. It's just simple math, but you have to put it together into a plan that's unique for you, that makes sense for you. So we teach budgeting all day long. I mean, you know, there's so many apps out there. There's so many things on people's phones that can help them budget. There really is no excuse anymore not to budget. But whether you're earning, you know, $100 a month or 1000 or even more, 10000 it doesn't matter how much you earn you still need to do a budget. And I'll tell you something I have learned over the years is that what I've noticed is that individuals on lower monthly incomes save more as a percentage of their income than individuals on a higher income because the higher income earners seem to have the attitude that, well, I have a lot of debt and we find that the bigger the income, the bigger the debt, by the way, I have a lot of debt, but I can afford to pay it off because I'm earning more money tomorrow. Well, if you're actually on a limited income, you're more concerned about money and you're actually budgeting more on your limited income, but you actually be more successful at it. So being successful in life doesn't mean you're good at budgeting. Chantal, does that resonate with you? Is that consistent with some of your observations? Yeah, I mean, I am obviously a big fan of budgeting. We do believe that there's a couple steps that might need to happen before someone is in the mental headspace to be able to budget. Because what we see oftentimes, and this is very common with people who may hold quite a bit of debt, is financial avoidance. And so I've heard stories of folks who go to try and sit down and do their budget and they go into like collapse mode in their nervous system. So they start getting like anxiety in the chest and they just want to like fall asleep. Or maybe they go into fight or flight where they just they have to shut it down and they can't even do it and they feel nauseous. And so if that's happening, what we need to do is we have to work with that a little bit before they can get in the position where they can actually budget. And another thing is within the psychology of scarcity, if someone is in financial scarcity, it impacts their ability to set long-term goals. So that, you know, the financial planning piece and then mapping out like a one-year budget is very hard. So what you have to do is you have to work within the scarcity tunnel in that situation. 
So what that means is in the tunnel of scarcity, you have to put out the immediate fire that's present. So if someone's like, yeah, I've got all this debt, it's going to take five years to pay it off, but I can't even pay my rent, right? So what you're going to want to address is how can we put out that immediate fire? And then what you're going to do is you're going to create some space in the brain so they can actually work on those longer term goals. And that is one of the roles that, you know, Jeff and the folks that work in the space that he does is they create plans for you within your scarcity tunnel. So after you get outside that scarcity tunnel, you can go into those bigger dreams and look even further ahead. And another thing, too, is when we're in that state of scarcity, we're more likely to act out on temptations because the nervous system is always going to look for ways to like soothe pain, essentially. And so if we're in scarcity around money and what Jeff said is very true, folks who are in financial scarcity or who have less, they budget all day long in their head. They're very good at budgeting because they have to. They have to be in trade-off thinking because they're in survival. That's essentially kind of what budgeting is for them. But they're also more likely to act out on a temptation when they're in that state because they become so cognitively exhausted and they're essentially suffering. So they're going to want to reach out to something to soothe the pain. This is why someone who's just about to go bankrupt is going to go and buy a new pair of shoes or, you know, go eat the chocolate cake or whatever it may be, because we're, we're wanting to soothe ourselves. So budgeting, yes, all day long, but supported budgeting, like acknowledge the nervous system that's there. What do you need to be able to go do that budget? Is it making sure you have a nice cup of tea? And maybe you tell yourself the first time I sit down, I'm only going to do this for five minutes. And then you step outside, you like sandwich it with support for your nervous system. And a big support for the nervous system is getting help with a professional. Do you see that, Jeff, with your clients, that kind of panic mode or that kind of intensity where people kind of shut down because of their fear, their inability to cope with the situation that they're in? Absolutely. Absolutely. The problem with modern finance, Doretta, is when you pay for something with a card or electronic payment, it doesn't feel like money, right? You don't actually realize what you're spending. I mean, I say to people, you know, the most simple type of budget is a physical budget you can see. So call it the jar method or the envelope method. Take your income, turn it into cash, and divide it amongst envelopes that you, that you pin on your wall. Call one envelope rent, one gas, one groceries, and so on and so on, right? So when you have to physically go and buy some gas for your vehicle, you take the cash out of the gas envelope, right? Let's say you get halfway for the month and the gas envelope's empty because you've overspent on gas or you didn't budget enough, okay? So where's the money going to come from? Okay, I'll take it from my grocery budget right okay now i'm going to go hungry right okay so what i'm going to do i'll take the grocery budget i'll take it from something else so you can see the way you push money around when it's when it is a finite resource and i think if people can do that maybe it make more sense to you know to a lot of people that where your money is actually going because when you put out your credit card you know and by the way credit sounds good right if you call a credit card a debt card how many people would actually have a debt card right so when you put out your your plastic card and you, and you pay for something electronically it doesn't seem like you're spending real money. 
Interesting. Chantal, you've talked about the work that you do in trauma-formed approaches, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of trauma that lead to these kinds of behaviors with money and these kinds of relationships with money? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you're asking that because that was one of the important points that I wanted to make, but I forgot, (laughs) was that part of the compassion is to have this lens of empathy, understanding that someone doesn't just wake up and decide to get in, become a gambler and get into bankruptcy, you know, or to be in these situations. There's something that happened to them that resulted in them needing to use their money in a way to survive or to soothe their nervous system. And some examples of this would be relational trauma. So, This is taking a look at the environment that a child grew up in with their family and the relational figures in their life and looking at maybe was there any attachment challenges for that child? Did that child grow up in an environment where they had to have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility to survive or to people please to survive? Did they grow up in an environment where there was a divorce and one parent showed affection with money or was there scarcity in the environment? Another example would be generational trauma and intergenerational trauma. So looking at the ancestral lineage, did the ancestral lineage experience scarcity? Did they experience any sort of trauma? I mean, there's many communities of people here in Canada who's experienced a lot of generational trauma through colonization, which is directly linked to capitalism and money. And so it would make sense that through this generational trauma, it could impact the future relationship with money. Another example is societal trauma. So just looking at some of the messages that we receive from the society that we grew up in. So for example, what are some of the gender messages? You know, for men, men have been told you have to be good at money and your worth is very much tied to how much you earn. Now, the amount of shame that that narrative creates for a man who's in a position to go into bankruptcy is massive to the point where they may resort to suicide. And then look at the the gender-based narratives around women. You know, women couldn't get access to a credit card to like 1970 something, right? So there's a narrative like women aren't smart enough to manage their own money. And now think of the shame that comes with that when a woman says, yeah, I'm in, I'm in a position where I might need to go bankrupt. So these are some sources of societal trauma. And then there's the entire looking at, you know, the lens of racism and the impacts of colonization. And then the last one is systemic trauma that we explore. And just looking at some of the systems, especially in the financial space, that have been created in toxic societies that elevate some and marginalize many others. So these are kind of the layers that we look at the relationship with money through. And Jeff, does any of that kind of resonate with your practice? Do you see that people are struggling with some of these issues and are they different? I mean, do you see, for example, a difference between men and women, for example, or people dealing with some of the other issues that uh, Chantal's raised? Well, we keep stats on a number of people and also the symptom of bankruptcy keeps stats as well, or tries to, on the average person in Canada that files a bankruptcy, their age, their demographic, 
whether they're a homeowner, their family size, that type of thing. And, you know, there are different demographics, depends on the area that you live in. For me, what I see is you learn from your parents. So if your parents were good with money, by and large, I think the children may be successful. I'll put that in quotes um, financially because they've learned early on some good money traits because I don't think that I'm not sure if they teach it in schools anymore, but teaching financial literacy in schools obviously will be a huge benefit to everybody. But by and large, if people go through low income, a life of low income and poverty, maybe because that's the, that's how they were brought up and that's how they lived growing up. And it's very hard for them to break out of that. So, you know, we talk about the idea of a trustee is that they help people once. So people say to me, Jeff, I like you, but I never want to see you again which is true, right? Because if we're doing our job properly. We should never see that person again. We should help them once and they're going to be successful. But we do see people that have to see a trustee twice, sometimes even three times, right? So a third bankruptcy is not uncommon for people, a third proposal. And what I've noticed is, is that over the years, so 10 years is really, is you know, is a lot, of, a lot happens in 10 years. So typically 10 years apart would be people get back into debt, for di- sometimes for different reasons. Sometimes it's the same reason. They just can't manage their money. I mean, I saw someone last week. He didn't have much debt at all. And I said to this chap, I said, you don't really need a trustee. You can really budget through this and pay it off yourself because you have a fairly good income. And he said, I can't. I cannot do it. He said, I can't. I don't have that fortitude to do it. I need your help. And it didn't make, you know, logically, it makes no sense. But that person cannot manage their finances, whatever reason, and needs the help of a trustee. So... You know, I, I spend a lot of time really every day I'm educating people on what's available to them, what assistance they can get. But we never start with a formal filing. It's always, you know, what's the self-help things you can do? There's lots of things you can do to help yourself first. And, you know, we come across it before. We're talking about, again, budgeting, right? And if you can learn to budget through your debt and pay it off, then, you know, there's different ways to do it. There's the snowball method, the avalanche method. Whatever works for you, try and get yourself a plan to become debt-free. But... You know, a lot of people, whether they come back to see a trustee once or they're multiple, we call them multiple offenders, they, you know, they just can't get their finances straight for any reason. It does come down, I think, to the way your head's wired and the way you, your relationship with money, I think, stems from, like anything, from when you were a child, what you've seen your parents doing, right? My parents had one credit card when I was growing up, one credit card, and it never, and it was stayed in the drawer. But then even took it out, it stayed in the drawer and it was there for an emergency, Right. I think now credits become I think we live in a society where people don't want to wait for anything. They want something now. It's self-gratification and they don't worry about what it's costing. They can go and get it because they have a credit card. So people have said to me, well, I've still got some money left. So what are you talking about? You've got money left. They said, I've got some room on my credit card. I haven't used all the credit yet. So they think of that as their money. Right. No, it's not your money. It's someone else's money that you're borrowing. Right. And they don't see that. I mean, I told you I see people in their 20s that come to see me and they've come in with a stack of 10 credit cards. They're young 20s. And I say, where did you get these credit cards? Well, they've got them at school, right? And they give out these credit cards with a small, maybe $1,000 limit. So they never told me how to pay it back, right? So, and they just go out and spend it and think it's free money. Well, there's no free money in life as we know. So again, I think it comes down to education, but you know, the mental stigma of being in debt it's very serious for some people. And I mean, Chantal mentioned suicide and, you know, at, at its extreme, yeah, the stress of money can cause it. And I've got stories of people that have, have seen me and have tried to commit suicide. And they've told me they did. And they had no idea 
they were feeling like that. They were almost an autopilot. And so, again, I say to people, you know, I can fix your money for you. I can fix your debt. This will help fix your mental health. That's the most important thing for you is to fix your mental health. And before you do anything with debt, the first thing you have to do is balance your monthly budget. So you're not getting further into debt. So, you know, stabilize the ship, make sure you're you're cutting your expenses according to your income or you can get more income. You've got to balance your monthly expenditure. Then you can deal with your debt and then you're on the road to success. But it it is a very, very big mind shift for people. Chantal, what do you think is beneath that issue of what Jeff referred to as the repeat offenders or people who maybe fight their way out of debt once or go through a bankruptcy once and then fall into it again and again? I suspect there's some pretty serious stuff going on under the surface there. Yeah. So, I mean, we would, through the lens that we look at it, we would say there's most likely trauma present and the interactions with money is one of the ways that the person is soothing the trauma and looking for essentially some distraction and some soothing and avoidance by using their money in that way. So that's for sure probably what's present with repeat offenders. The other thing that is an example of societal trauma, we believe, is our relationship with dopamine in our society. And part of that is our relationship with instant gratification. Now, we talk a lot about this in the program that we run where we explore this very subtle message that we hear from consumerism. And that is that if you ever feel lonely, bored, tired, inadequate, anything but like that anticipatory excitement, the dopamine feeling, something's wrong with you. You are defective and we have to fix that right away. And consumerism has positioned this fix as consuming something. And we know through the neuroscience and the research around dopamine that dopamine is very addictive. And what ends up happening is people, they call it the hedonic treadmill, where people will reach out to like soothe their pain and their the increase of dopamine baseline will happen. But anytime the dopamine baseline increases, In order for the brain and the body to balance out, it has to decrease. But the problem is, is we live in a world that says that if you feel low, something's wrong with you. So we're going back on that cycle to get it up again. And the more we seek dopamine, that window of what gives us excitement or anticipation or pleasure, it starts to shrink. And so the things that are going to give us the dopamine increase are going to be more expensive or more risky. And another thing that happens is studies have shown that when we do not delay gratification, So when we just swipe the card and get what we want right away, even though it's not our money, it's the credit card money, the prefrontal cortex in the brain can atrophy. Now, this is really important because the prefrontal cortex is the area of the brain that is associated with impulse control, executive decisioning, you know, moving out of survival, this or that thinking, everything that we need for financial literacy and budgeting and planning, most likely part of the prefrontal cortex needs to be lit up. So what it's saying is the more that you 
reach out for instant gratification, the less access you have to the part of the brain that helps you with decision-making and impulse control. And then it becomes this very, very vicious cycle. And this is why we see folks in, it's like being in an addiction pattern. It's like the addiction to dopamine. So logically we could say, well, you shouldn't go bankrupt again because all of this pain But the brain's like, I just need that neurochemical. In the research around dopamine, so we often cite a a dopamine researcher, Dr. Anna Lemke, and she works with folks who are in addiction recovery, um, but she goes to kind of the source of the addiction and she kind of links it to like a dopamine addiction. And we see that often with overspending or gambling or even financial avoidance. And one thing that she talks about is a strategy to put yourself on a path of recovery is something she calls self-binding. And essentially what this is, is it's creating boundaries for your behaviors that you have around money. So I heard Jeff say a couple of these self-binding strategies, and they would be things like using cash and not using a credit card. So saying, okay, when I go out, I'm going to leave my credit card at home and I'm only going to take cash because I don't feel like I am in a place where I can trust myself to not use the card. So this is my self-binding strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you constantly are in a space of like chronic revolving credit, like line of credit or credit card debt, the self-binding strategy would be you cannot have revolving credit. You cannot have something that you get to re-advance when you pay it down, right? So looking for ways that we can, you know, create these little boundaries for ourselves um, if we don't feel like our mindset is fully there. Another one she calls chronological self-binding. So this is using time. So I will only go and spend the money on Saturdays. And it's only between the hours of two to four that will I will engage in this behavior and I have a limit of this, right? So about setting your own limits and understanding the kinds of limits that will work for you. For me, I call it willpower. Having the willpower to do what you want to do compared to what you do do. So, you know, in some ways, I mentioned before the chap that came to see me who could have paid his double by himself but didn't have the ability to do it. The trustee is a self-binding strategy, I think. Wow, that is fascinating. We've spent some time talking about being in debt and what that process looks like getting out. Jeff, what do you see when you've developed a debt solution and there is a light at the end of the tunnel? How does that present with people? How do they generally feel? By and large, it's amazing. You see the people's relief on their face. They didn't think there was a solution. They actually didn't think there was a way out. They'd be in debt for the rest of their lives. And when you present the solution to people, you can see the changing stance of the person. Their shoulders are rising up. You know, they can suddenly see some hope for themselves that they will be out of debt. And it's an amazing thing. I mean, some people, they're like, well, I'm still depressed that I'm in debt and I just need to get through this process. And because, you know, there's a very fast way. If you've never been bankrupt before and you have an income below a certain guideline, then you can you can actually get out of debt fairly quickly, really inexpensively. And some people just want to take that route and get through it quickly and so they can rehabilitate themselves mentally as well as financially. And then there are some people that feel complete remorse 
And they say, well, I never expected anyone to pay anything for me. So I want to pay back what I can. And we say, well, this is what perhaps we suggest you try and offer and pay back that you can afford. So, you know, some people just want to get it done with. And there's others that want to take, you know, what we say, we say the, the more ethical route and say, you know, I'll pay back what I can. I mean, in the end of the day, you get to the same place. I, as a trustee, it never ceases to amaze me that you can do this for people. And they walk in knowing that there's no hope and walk out with a plan. And, you know, you just can't put a price. I mean, I've had more hugs to from clients in this profession than anything else I've ever done, right? Because people are just so happy. I said, Jeff, can I give you a hug? And yeah, and yeah, and, and I used to do, so I started my career doing corporate insolvencies. That's when you close businesses down. And I said to you, in that situation, you know, no one really wins. This is the most gratifying thing I think I've ever found to do as a job. And I, I tell people, you don't jump out of bed when you're 18 or 20 and say, I want to be an insolvency trustee. The job finds you. One of the things I wonder if we can talk a little bit about maybe some healthy habits for people, you know, where inflation is rising again, we're seeing interest rates going out, people are becoming very squeezed on mortgages, etc. Do you have any advice to share healthy habits that people can do to stay on top of their finances to avoid needing your help and hugs? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I do a monthly radio show. We spoke about this recently. You have to talk to your family, right? I mean, I did one on Valentine's Day, believe it or not, about family debt. And you would be shocked, maybe shocked, at the number of husbands and wives that don't tell each other their financial full picture, if you like. You know, you have to tell your partner, talk to your partner, get a plan together, work together, and then confront your own situation. So look at your income, look at your monthly payments, look at your budget, and just try and there's easy ways to help. There's easy ways to fix. People come in and see me and their budget's offside. I say, well, why are you spending that much on, you know, on entertainment or perhaps could you, could, could you cut this down or, you know, your cell phone bills, 200 bucks a month. Maybe you should only be spending 100, right, for example. So there's lots of ways to sit down and self-help yourself, you know, and if you talk about debt rehabilitation and getting a healthy credit score and so on, you know, there's metrics you should be following. Don't miss credit card payments. Don't apply for too much credit. Don't utilize your credit more than 30%. So let's say you have a credit card for $1,000. Don't owe more than 300. Uh, and by the way, if you go into debt on your credit card, pay it off, right? Don't put money on there that you can't afford to pay off. So get into some healthy habits. And you know, part of the process with a trustee is, and this is government mandated, by the way, is mandatory credit counseling. So there's an education component to this because the government want the people that they help to go forward and be financially successful. So there's two sessions I have to do. And they learn about money management, budgeting, the warning signs of being in debt, so to, to avoid being in debt in the future, and how to be successful financially. Because, you know, it doesn't make sense to cure the issue without curing the problem. And Chantal, can you share some tactics with us for people who are facing this sort of mental stress and financial stress about debt, things that they can do to take control back? We have a six-phased approach to interacting with your money, and we call it the trauma of money method. And we believe it can be used for a small decision on whether to buy something or your overall relationship with money. And I'll just share with you the first couple of steps in this six-phased approach. So phase one, we call the window of resilience phase. And this is where we essentially acknowledge what is the narrative that's present around the relationship with money. So 
what's happening with my money that I find them unhelpful. I'm carrying a lot of debt right now and I feel like I'm in financial scarcity. Now, what is the belief around that? So, you know, I'm not smart with money. I'm not good enough. I'm a failure and I have a lot of shame. So we're acknowledging the narratives that are present. And then we ask this question, like, whose shame is this? So we start to map like where we first started hearing these narratives. And so this might be like, if you're a woman, you might say, well, you know, I grew up in a world where I was told I'm not good enough with money. And in my household growing up, you know, my mom and dad always fought about money. So you start to like depersonalize some of this. And then while you're doing that, you acknowledge the nervous system. So what you're going to do is you're going to do something that is going to provide some nourishment to the nervous system as you're exploring some of these narratives. So that might be like go outside and have a walk or call a friend and have a laugh, making yourself a cup of tea, doing some like intentional mindful breathing, cold water therapy, anything that can like somatically support the body and the nervous system to move you into we call it the window of resilience, that place. It's like the eye of the storm. It's the calm place within the stressful situation. And then once you're there, you then go into phase two, which we call the vision phase. So this is when you start going into the space of like, what are my financial goals? Like what's really important to me? What are some of my values? How do I want it? What type of life do I want to live? Because we find that when you're more in alignment with some of your values, and your visions, it becomes the motivation to pay off the debt or to do whatever the thing is that you want to do, rather than just taking the focus of you're bad, you have to pay off this debt. It's like, well, why do I want to pay off this debt? You know, let's move to the place of hope. It's like, well, one time I dream of owning a home and maybe like having a horse. I don't know. <laughs> and so it's like, what is the motivation there behind that rather than making it a fear motivation? And then after that, the next phase we call the inventory phase. So this is where we're going to collect inventory of what we need to do to move into a helpful space with our money. So if you are in a position where you've got quite a bit of debt that feels unmanageable, your inventory phase would be to do some research on what type of support is available for this and to call, you know, like Jeff's organization and maybe have a consultation. Just all you're doing, you're not making a decision. You're just collecting inventory. And when we look at it like that, it kind of takes some of the pressure off and it allows people to move into that space of like exploration. And then from there, you you feel way more supported to take action. Anything that you want to add, Jeff? Dorada, this has been fascinating for me. And to hear Chantel's thoughts on people's thoughts and what they're going through themselves, I mean, it really, it can't do anything but help what we do to help more people. So... We do it anyway, but to hear it from a third party with a different viewpoint, no, I absolutely love it. So anyway, thank you. It's been an amazing podcast to present on and also to listen to as well. So thanks, Chantel and Jeff, for joining us today. And I'm sure many of our listeners have learned that talking about debt, understanding your relationship with money, and owning your financial situation is crucial in overcoming its barriers. You've been listening to Mastering Money from Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. You can click to all the resources mentioned in this episode in the description for this podcast in your podcast app. 
Please write and review us. If you'd like to get in touch, our email is financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. This season is proudly brought to you by BDO Debt Solutions, helping you turn the page on debt. Please note, the views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and not necessarily the views of CPA Canada. This is a recorded podcast. The information presented is current as of the date of recording. New and changing government legislation and programs may have come into effect since the recording date. Please seek additional professional advice or information before acting on any podcast information. Be well, be kind, and remember, managing debt is within your power when you're informed, prepared, and diligent. Thank you.